This podcast is sponsored by ebookit.com, self-publishing solutions for the independent author and small press. Visit us today at ebookit.com. Welcome to the Toastmasters podcast, the official podcast of Toastmasters International. Hello, everybody. This is Greg Gazin. And I'm Ryan Levesque. Ryan, according to the Cleveland Clinic, neurodiversity is a word used to explain the unique ways people's brains work. Being neurodivergent means having a brain that works differently from the average or the neurotypical person. Our guest today is an expert in this area and identifies herself as neurodivergent. In fact, she says, and I quote, I want people to know I'm autistic and that I'm successful because of, not in spite of, the way my brain is wired. Ryan, could you please introduce our guest? Jolene Stockman is an award-winning writer, author, and TEDx speaker. She is a master of neurolinguistic programming and one of the youngest people in the world to achieve the Distinguished Toastmaster Award. Jolene lives in New Zealand and speaks globally through the International Indigenous Speakers Bureau. She wrote an article in the May 2023 issue of the Toastmaster magazine. Jolene Stockman, welcome to the Toastmasters podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I haven't got my fancy voice. I didn't know I'd need a fancy podcast voice, so I'll have to work on that. Hello, and thank you for having me. (laughs) So just to kick it off, Jolene, growing up personally, I I felt like I never fit in, that I wasn't like others. And in your TEDx talk, when you said neurodiversity is like running on Windows and everyone else has a Mac, well, it's the other way around for me. I was on a Mac when everyone else is Windows. And I'm just wondering... If not fitting in means I'm not neurotypical, what actually characterizes neurodivergence? Oh, neurodivergency is so exciting. And I think there's a lot of us wandering around with neurodivergent brains and don't even realize it because we've got this idea of what it means. And if it is as simple as a different operating system, and and even in my even since my TED talk, I've I've learned there's you know we could be Mac and we could be Windows, but we could also be creating a program from scratch, or we could be using you know two different programs and blending them together. I mean, there's just so many different ways that people experience and process the world. The idea that we're all sort of um, feeling like there is a normal when maybe the thing that we've been missing is that strange is normal. And that quirky is normal, and that different is normal, that feeling of not fitting in is what a lot of us actually do feel. You've got dyslexia, autism, um, PTSD, even uh, mental health stuff. Anything that causes a person to see and experience the world differently and affects the way that they communicate is a neurodivergency, which is really exciting. I mean, being Indigenous, that's another key neurodivergency. Straight away, if you have someone who is Indigenous and someone who isn't talking together, they're speaking two different languages without even knowing it. And that is where it's not about looking to see how we're wrong, how we don't fit, but it's looking to see how what we bring actually fits into a bigger picture. And that's that neurodiversity word. It's like if human beings are neurodiverse, then we all have a place. You know, maybe the autistics don't sleep because we were the ones that used to watch the fire at night. We, we have a place. It's just that we've all sort of been pushed into these little boxes and we feel like we don't fit because we don't fit in the box, but maybe it's the box that's the problem. <laughs> I'm glad you explained it that way because quite often when you hear the term neurodiversity, the first thing that pops into people's minds is... Uh, is autism. So thank you for that. Looking back, I'm curious, how did it feel growing up noticing that 
perhaps you are experiencing the world differently from those around you? It's only looking back that you have a clear lens over things at the time, especially when you're a child. So for example, I'm fairly certain that there are spiders in milk. So if I'm certain of that, and then I look around and I see other people are drinking milk, I don't assume that they are enjoying the spiders in the milk. I assume that there's something wrong with me, right? I assume that there is something wrong with me. So that whole idea of you don't actually grow up thinking you're different. You grow up thinking you're wrong, you're wrong. You've been dropped off on the wrong planet. You've um, there's some terrible mistake has been made, and that's shameful. It starts so young that you really don't process it in a logical way. It's just emotional. So you just realize that other people are reacting to things differently to you, and your first instinct is not to say, "Oh, put my hand up. I need some help. Something's going on here." Your first instinct is to cover it, cover it up, and fit in and blend and hold your breath. And when you do that long enough. Uh, the, yeah, unfortunately, the more you do that, the more you sort of suck it in and pretend to be normal, uh, the more it's expected of you. And so if any cracks do show, it seems even stranger when actually you've been covering the whole time. It's a lot of energy. And I laugh now, but it really is a lot of work. So you were adapting in some respects. Yeah, 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 exactly. Constantly um, adapting. And in some some ways that are... That are um, obvious you know so you know tone of voice facial expressions is a good one you know you sort of um like eye contact a lot of autistic will have a uh we don't look in your eyes because that's where we're getting a flood of for me flood of information but maybe just on your eyebrow like so close close enough to get away with it sort of a thing you you have these strategies that you just develop and you have no idea that there are other people like you doing it because all of this is going on in your own mind and it's only to you know to grow up and to find out and to meet other people who are doing it. The, the relief, the weight off is incredible. And then, you know, you get a little bit angry. Like, if this was true for me the whole time, like that's a lot of energy spent trying to be something that I'm not. That's, you know, fly to the moon levels of energy being wasted. It's like, oh, man, imagine if we could harness the, the power of all of the people who right now are just – trying not to fidget during meetings because people might think they're not paying attention when actually they have to fidget because that's how they get their energy out. You know, there's just a million little examples like that. You know, we are Mm. holding it in and maybe it's time to let it out. Jolene, I'm wondering, are you doing anything special right now to adapt your communication (laughs) to this conversation? Oh, you're so sneaky. That's such a great (laughs) question. So my hands are very tightly. I'm clenching and I'm pinching things down. My legs across like I'm um hands are going in and out like there's a, I'm doing a lot of movement that I can get away with that you would not know uh, so okay for example I had had a job interview um last year and my I have one of those you know heart monitors pedometer things on my wrist mm-hmm. and even though for the whole interview my face because it was on camera looked completely still completely steady my little wrist thing uh registered it as high intensity activity it was like I was working out um, even mm. though no one would have been able to tell. So it's quite incredible what you can do internally and with small moves while covering it. I mean, it's and isn't it funny? Even though I know with you, I probably don't have to do that. I just, it's so, um, I've been doing this my whole life. So it's not, it's my, my instinct does not tell me to be seen. So this is why it's so exciting for the young ones coming through. It's like, do you know what? It's called, it's called stimming. When you sort of flap your hands or you make little movements or sing mm-hmm. or there's, there's all different kinds of ways to stim. Any kind of sort of physical 
verbal movement that makes you feel relaxed. And lots of kids are getting, you know, do you know what? This is fine. If that helps you relax, that is a whole lot better for you than cigarettes. So let's just encourage that. And so Mm. coming through are going to be more and more neurodivergent people who just, you know what, if they want to get up in a meeting and pace because that's how they think better or, you know, see now because we're talking about it, my hands are getting higher up and higher up and more and more alive, (laughs) but you can't see that. It's the beauty of a podcast, right? (laughs) (laughs) So I think something else our listeners would be very surprised to learn if they haven't read your article, for example. You mentioned in your article having situational mutism which you describe as an experience of being unable to speak under specific stressors. Again, you don't come across as someone who would ever be at a loss Mm. for words, but I wondered if you might be willing to elaborate on this a bit and perhaps share what it feels like in those moments when it occurs. Love this question. Situational mutism. Often it'll get called selective mutism because from mm-hmm. the outside and you know to medical professionals and teachers and parents, it looks like a child or a person is choosing, they're selecting to not speak. They're being obstinate, they're being defiant. Actually, mm-hmm. what it is, it's situational. So for example, I would be more comfortable speaking to a crowd, a big crowd, than I would um in a small group. That's when I realized um, my own situation. Because, you know, everyone just tells you you're shy. They just go, oh, she's shy, and especially girls, especially girls. She doesn't, she needs to learn to speak up. Oh, she really needs to learn to speak up. But actually, it's a physical thing. And so I've had it happen as an adult, which is amazing because I can really sort of get in there and feel it. As a kid, you're just panicking. As an adult, I can go, oh my gosh, you know, I can feel that there's sort of, there's a particular kind of pressure with the, eyes on you it's for me it happens in a smaller group so if a teacher calls on me in a classroom situation and people turn to look at me I can feel their attention and I can feel the the um, expectation and it's almost like I'm cut off from my voice and my tongue everything is just there's nothing there and even though your brain can be racing and I can know the answer even I could write down the answer beautifully but I can't get it out of my mouth and it's um it's scary, but at the same time, the, the more scary part is for people to think it's deliberate, for people to think that I'm controlling it somehow or doing it for attention or for drama. That is probably the, the worst part of it. And it, because, it, like you say, it is so hard to explain. It is so hard. How could I have situational mutism? You know, I could see why somebody would just laugh because it sounds funny. Please, could she be mute? That'd be great. Oh, my husband would be like, oh, well, could we make that happen? But that's, um, <laughs> sorry, I joke. But um, the the ability to to speak is not how we actually communicate the most, right? And so that's what's been so interesting. I, I really relate strongly to, you know, the autistics who don't use words to communicate because to me so much more is going on behind your mouth, behind behind the words. The words that come out are the sort of the last the last aspect of communication. Connecting a couple things that you spoke about in the last few minutes, one being you just mentioned that you're much more comfortable in front of a large group than in a small setting. <laughs> and then a few minutes ago you're talking about being here at your desk talking with us and the parts of your body squirming. (laughs) Um, I was so struck in watching your TEDx at how poised you were on stage. I also noticed it looked to me like you were being quite deliberate with your use of breathing. 
And I, I wondered if that was something you use to sort of relax yourself. I guess the question is, what's your secret? How did you stand in front of that audience and seem so incredibly comfortable in your skin? And this is why this is the Toastmasters podcast, because that question <laughs> is epic. If I just had to nail down one secret, Ryan and Greg, I would say Toastmasters. Um, to- Toastmasters, of course, is the, the biggest secret that I have that isn't secret because I have all of those skills that have just been rehearsed and rehearsed and practiced and practiced. When it came to the the TEDx, it's funny, you know, Toastmasters, you, you think you're really good. You do it for a couple of years and you're like, yeah, I'm good. And then you go enter a competition and suddenly you're like, oh God, I'm, I wasn't ready for this. It's a whole new level of stress. And then you get through that and suddenly you um, go to a different club. And now, oh my gosh, you know, you're always pushing that comfort zone a little further out, a little further out. And I knew with the TEDx that this was going to be as far as I'd ever gone. And you you can't predict anything except you can control sort of the beforehand. So you can do preparation, right? Leo Baxendale always told me, preparation, preparation, preparation. So that is the part that I controlled. A lot of times with that speech, um, I would cry while I gave it. I would cry. And of course, and of course, because I talk fast. I'm a fast talker. It took so much energy to slow down for that talk. And the pauses just about killed me. I can't even watch it now because I so want to jump in to the pauses. I can't stand it. But again, Toastmasters, you know, people would tell me people cannot hear you as fast as you can speak. (laughs) They can't process it as fast as you can speak. Hmm. Um, If you get the opportunity to do TEDx, you you just know that, I mean, potentially nothing happens, right? Potentially you give your talk. You go home, you have a cry, you never do that again, and and that's the end. <laughs> but potentially you speak and people hear you and it makes a difference. And so for me going into that, I assumed best case scenarios. Like, okay, if every single word I say counts, what am I going to say? And then you've got to walk that balance between being completely overwhelmed now because, oh, my gosh, that's huge, um, and also getting the job done. The secret, the big secret is Toastmasters, but the little secret is making it your absolute priority. You know, I didn't sleep for weeks and weeks. Um, I I was practicing and practicing and rehearsing and rewriting. Oh my gosh, I was rewriting the night before because I was still learning. You know, even now it's like, oh, there's some things I said that I just cringe because I didn't know better. But you can only, this is what I thought, you know, you can be too scared to speak because you're going to get something wrong or you can speak, you can be wrong, you can own it and you can apologize and do better. And I would rather that because there's far too many people speaking who think they know everything. And I would rather have people speaking who are willing to make the mistakes and and do better, which kind of sucks because it would be so much nicer just to be in bed and watch TV. Like sometimes I think that, like you're practicing a speech, you're like, you know, other people just watch TV. This is really a strange thing to do on purpose for fun, right? But that's all Toastmasters. That's why we all get along across the world because we're all, you know, we've all got that little piece of it that says, I want to be better even though I'm terrified, Jolene, I found the pauses in your TEDx presentation very powerful. In fact, I yeah. sensed that there was a little bit when you were pausing that was giving you the emotional control because that's what I saw in yes. your eyes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And also just trying not to run. There's a couple of times there and I was ready to run, and which is unlike me. Like I knew where the door was. I could go. Um, of course, the five cameras on you and oh, oh man, it was, I'm so glad it's done. But Wow. <laughs> 
You mentioned Toastmasters as your secret sauce in your success in your TEDx. That's a perfect segue into what we're going to talk a little bit about now, because yes, as you mentioned, this is the Toastmasters podcast. So I'm going to refer back to the article. In the article, you say that Toastmasters has a distinct appeal for those with neurodivergent minds. Why is that so? Oh, I love this so much. Who would have guessed? Because you don't know. You just feel sort of at home. But one of the, for, there's a list of them in the article, but the, the top one for me, the biggest thing that as an autistic, I'm always looking for in, in the world, in every aspect of the world is, is a sense of safety. And I get that sense of safety from consistency and routine. The way that everything is scheduled and programmed, everything is clear and direct. It's very comforting to a, a neurodivergent brain to walk into a space, know what is happening, know what everybody's role is, and be able to proceed from there. It just lets you relax and learn. Suddenly you're on the same as, you know, so for example, I can go in as a teenager and be on the same footing as a bank manager or a police officer who are also giving table topics because we are all terrified, but we're all being sort of wrapped up, same consistent. Uh, we're all equal when it comes to public speaking. And I love that. And of course you elaborate on that in the article. So we want to encourage everyone to, to read the article. How did you tumble or stumble into Toastmasters? You know, that thing where you have a big midlife crisis and you're only a teenager <laughs> and you think, I'd like to rebel against the world, but, you know, piercings and tattoos, it just doesn't seem enough. I'm going to go with Toastmasters. Toastmasters felt like something I could do that would be completely outside of, of anything I'd done before. I'd, I'd tried going to film school and had been completely, um, oh, had the rug pulled out for me in terms of the feeling that I had when I got there, I thought, oh, film school, it's my dream. I'm going to make movies and I'm going to meet people who are like me. And then you get there and, oh my gosh, it takes a lot of assertiveness and a lot of people are very loud and very, you know, it may have just been the timing, the group of people that I was with, but it, it reshaped my whole life, that experience of, of finding another place that I didn't fit. And so I came back home and a lot of crying and I did dye my hair blue and I did pierce my eyebrow, but Toastmasters was the big, uh, the big, the big decision that I made. Uh, so I, so I, it was deliberate, but I, I kind of, part of me thought it was going to be easy. I really did. I love the idea <laughs> of Toastmasters being something subversive. <laughs> Just really <laughs> awesome. <laughs> but, Jolene, what would you say was the biggest change or biggest impact of Toastmasters on your life? Oh, I'm going to name drop. Name drop. Sure. Leo Baxendale, five times DTM. He was our club president. He was my mentor. For the biggest thing about Toastmasters for me was the people that it connected me with. To have these incredible people, leaders, and then to have them sort of get up and tell you stories about how when they were new, they were anxious and they had to go and throw up before their speech. And it just gives you so much hope and so much um, a sense of just empowerment you know, what is possible and to feel so uh, taken care of. And it's, I never, you don't understand until you've been in Toastmasters for a while, that feeling of wanting to reach back. You know, once you get to a certain point, all you want to do is be that person for other people. And that, again, there's that Toastmasters thing where it's just set up to support each other in ways that, um, that human beings, I think, really relate well to. Mm. So for me, it, it was definitely the people, but there's, oh, don't start me because, there's a lot of elements to Toastmasters that changed my life. How about skills-wise? Just one. I'm going to limit you to one because okay. I know there's lots, right? 
I know there's so many. Really understanding that people cannot process as quickly as I can speak. And so not taking that as a as a reason to slow down, but instead sort of giving grace to people who have a different kind of processing. So I have learned not to speak slower, although I do, but to control it. So if I want to, I can still speak fast. If I want to, I can speak slowly. It's a choice now, which is a gift. So you feel that's a good way to help better connect with people then? Yeah. Yeah. There's that thing again with different brains. You know, you just, you, we are so sort of selfish and egotistical in that sense where we think just because I see the world this way, everyone else must. And that sense of privilege, it's like, oh, I get so embarrassed now when I realize how much privilege I have and how much I haven't realized uh, what other people are going through around me, you know, and vice versa. But yeah. Let me tell you a story, Jolene. Yes. And there's a, a question wrapped in it. So, <laughs> oh, nice. This is about 20 plus years ago. I had an acquaintance who has a number of children, and one of them is autistic. And I remember speaking with him, and he was talking about one of his sons. And I said, Oh, he's your autistic son, right? And then something changed in his energy. And mm -hmm. he, corrected me. And he said, um, he's on the autism spectrum. And oh. it was kind of like, oh, got it. I didn't have much experience with autism then. And it was clear that, okay, I said something, <laughs> you know, that was not yeah. uh, the right way to say it. And so I was so surprised all these years I've been referring to people as, you know, a person with autism or has autism mm -hmm. and been very deliberate about that. And you have a very different approach to it. You want to be referred to as autistic mm -hmm. rather than has autism or autism diagnosis. Can you share that world with me and with our audience? Because I think it's a surprise oh. to a lot of people. I love this. This is a language thing and it's huge and it's controversial and lots of people have different opinions on it. I think the sort of cleanest way to put it is that autistics ourselves tend to describe us as autistic. The, the research, if they poll us, we'll say, no, I'm autistic. It's not something I leave at home. It's not something I can take on and off. It's not with me. I'm not on it. it. It's who I am. Whereas if you talk to parents, medical professionals, teachers, they like to say with autism because it separates what they see as being a disorder from the person. Whereas because I don't see it as a disorder, I see it as a, an innate part of who I am to me, I'm autistic as much as I am left-handed. It sort of affects everything that I do. I totally understand that parents especially, they want to think that they've got this wonderful child who's just oh trapped inside this horrible author. They're under they're buried underneath the autism. Autism is not a it's not a bad thing. It's not, it's amazing. And I think we've had a lot of non-autistics speaking for us and that's where the confusion comes in. You know, as long as you keep reading uh, books and seeing movies and, and media that's that's presented by people who aren't autistic, you're going to get a slightly different point of view, which doesn't make it wrong. And some autistics um, still want to be referred to in a different way. Safest way is just wait and see how someone refers to themselves or their mm. child and then just copy them mm -hmm. because there is no one solid 100% perfect way to get it. Wow. Thank you. I love that answer. So great. Jolene, this is really interesting because Brian and I saw both your 
TEDx presentation as well as a subsequent follow-up on YouTube, a short TEDx confession, where you expressed regret over the use of, I guess, the functioning labels, that is calling somebody high-functioning versus Mm -hmm. low-functioning. Can you share a little bit about that? Man, that is going to be a series that has many, many, many parts. Uh, Yeah, as you learn. You, you do tend to sometimes regret the things that you've said, but it's out there. And so while I can't reach as many people as the TEDx, I can at least put it out there, the update. Very much like the language around, am I autistic or do I have autism? Functioning labels have sort of been turned into this thing where it's a way of saying, oh, I'm autistic, but not the bad kind. Uh, when really you can't tell how well functioning somebody is. You know, I'm a perfect example because you would, people would just have no idea how much trouble I have with function. You know, you, with autistics, you know, you've got people who can do massive, fantastical mathematical equations, but shoelaces, ugh, just, you know, can't, cannot do it. I mean, my thinking is it's because autistic brains are just like, what's the point? You know, <laughs> what is the point of that? Let's just get on with it. Um, but when it comes to other people saying, oh, she's low functioning, I mean, it breaks my heart when I anyone, we're all the same, but we all have a different way of experiencing the world and we relate to each other. I certainly, uh, more who, who would, they would call a high support needs autistic than a neurotypical person. Our brains are just set up in different ways and functioning labels are such a lazy hurtful way to refer to anybody. I mean, gosh, just imagine being called a high functioning or a low functioning. High functioning implies that I can't ask for help because obviously I don't need it. Obviously I'm fine. And low functioning implies there's no there's no hope. There's no sense of potential. There's no faith in what could be possible. So we're sort of doing a disservice with any kind of functioning like so, so ideally, we say support needs. I've got support needs. Don't make me go to the supermarket. I hate it. And that's a support need. I was going to say, that's why I have Ryan here, because he reminds me of things that I quite often forget. Yes. <laughs> Seriously. Yes, yes, yes. And so his, he's your support person, right? But you just not call it that. You'd call it, you got, you got Ryan with you. And, and you're a team. And that's kind of what it is. It's like, how do we work together as a human team using the, the strengths of some people to offset the challenges of other people? Like, it seems so sort of, duh. Yeah. No, it's great. Thank you so much for that. Everybody, every human being has needs. They're human needs. Special. We're not special. We're not different. We're just people. And as you sort of go through your life, you have different support needs. You know, a person is doesn't need glasses is very privileged. But as you get older, you may need glasses. And, you know, you have high support needs. You're just a human and your body's wearing out. It's kind of a, it's very normal to have needs. And that feeling of being a burden because you have needs, that feeling of, oh, you're extra work because you have needs. That's what we want to let go of. We want to be like, asking people what their needs are. It want, you want it to be like, we want you included. Like you said, we want to have good conversations and how can we facilitate that with you? Awesome. All right, follow-up question. I'd, I'd really like to ask yeah. for your radical transparency on this. Yes. Is, <laughs> is there anything Greg or I could have done differently on this interview to make this, let's just say, a more pleasant interview experience for you? Hmm. That is such... My immediate thought is provide the questions. Provide the questions, provide what exactly what you're going to ask and what you'd like 
me to say, really, um, so that I sort of get a feel for exactly what I'm walking into. In saying that, if that's how we do it all the time, we're never going to see autistics. Um, I had another interview where they had sent me the questions in advance and I had stayed up for nights writing beautiful answers and into little sort of nice little audio bites and and things. And then on the morning of, they were like, do you know what? I've got some ideas. We're going to do something different. So forget all the questions. Oh, sorry. I had a meltdown in my own time when, of course, when I got on on camera, I was fine as much as you can be. But a part of me did kind of wish that I had had the meltdown because you, I think, especially with someone who appears neurotypical, you can't tell what's going on under the surface. It is very hard to tell how hard I've worked to come across calm and polite and and normal. So sometimes people need to see that. And that's kind of why we need to have more autistic teachers and finish that. So so you could have provided me with the questions, but if you did provide me with the questions, you'd have a different experience. Just that I think that you did actually in there ask me, is there anything you could do to make it and I just thought, well even to be that's that's lovely. That's enough. They they recognize that I might need something that no one's ever asked for before. And they're open to that. Being open, being open as if just to enlighten our listeners, we did ask ahead of time whether there was anything specific we should or shouldn't yeah. do, or we should say or shouldn't say to make it easier for her. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a funny thing because I'm, the, I'm the, the generation sort of told, we were told to harden up, harden up, get over it, get on with it. It's It never occurs to me to ask for what I need, not ever. And that's what I love about my children. One of a couple of things, but, but that one particularly is that they will ask for what they need. You know, we've been in a, in a cafe and the speaker was really, really loud. And I would just tend to think I'm the only one with a problem, so I'm not going to say anything. My children will you know, put their hand up and they'll say, is there any way that we can turn the sound down? And then next thing you know, they've done it and people are happy mm. to. I think it would be a sign of progress for me if you had said, is there anything we can do? And I said, oh yeah, here's a list of things. <laughs> uh, whereas for me, I'm just like, oh no, I to be to have a space in, in this world. I can't believe that I'm allowed to be here. And so I hold myself together, which is what the new autistics won't do. And I'm glad for that. Awesome. Referring back to the questions, it would be a different experience and we try best to have more of a natural conversation. Now, if someone is uncomfortable and really needs the questions, yes. we'll definitely give them to them ahead of time. It is. It's that, it's that, it depends on what your, what your outcome is, right? Here, the outcome, you're having, like you say, good conversations. And so maybe that's the key is to say, here's our goal. If there's anything we can do to help you with that, but the good conversations part, as opposed to sort of the last, the one where I got the questions changed on me is that they had a very um, goal for the presentation to get certain points across and there was no way I was going to be able to get those points across and sort of free range my brain with whatever happened. So absolutely, the goal is going to make the difference and I think you're you're so right. And that's why uh, not having the questions in this situation, I mean, it's, I'm, you know, you're, it's not like you're coming after me to, to try and trap me and, you know, you know it's, it's, gotcha. this is very different. Yeah, exactly. We're not having a press conference here. Right. I think it'll be okay. Jolino, I'm thinking back to our entire conversation and I'm staring at my notes page in front of me and the title of your book pretty much says it all. So I'm going to ask you about your book and it's called Autistic World Domination, How to Script Your Life. I mean, that just sums up what we talked about, I think, in, in some respects. Tell us a little bit about your book, please. This is about making the world your own. And I, you know, I'm a little bit, um, you know, pushing my luck with the, with the title, but there's that idea that you are used to oppression. Ooh, to people who are used to being privileged, equality feels like oppression. 
and it's that idea that sticks are so we're so used to just um being being linked feeling broke we're not broken but we feel broken we feel different we feel out of place and to put this idea out there that we could actually be in charge we could be in charge not necessarily of the whole world but certainly of the world that we go into people are saying oh you know the autistic child they'll need to learn to speak they'll need to you know they need fresh air they'll have to go outside I'm a writer. I don't go outside. I never have fresh air and I'm fine. You know, it's like, it's nice to be able to tell the parents that the world is how we shape it. There's, there's, there's no real world, but people love to tell you that. Love to say, oh, there's a real world and a normal world. It's like, yeah, there is. But you know what? I'm just going to say no thanks. No thanks on that. And if I want to eat the same thing every single meal, then guess what? And I'm going to be happy doing it. So what's, you know, what are we really all doing running around trying to, to, what is success, right? What is success? Got all these, you know, unhappy married people, all these people with great jobs that they they hate doing. Like, let's just get back to what makes us happy and do that. I'll oh, see so easy, right? Didn't even need a book. Oh, this has been so enlightening. And certainly this episode <laughs> is certainly not a no thanks to anyone. So kind of a strange way of saying, <laughs> folks, if you've enjoyed this episode as much as we have, I encourage you to share this episode with everyone. You can find the Toastmasters podcast at toastmasterspodcast.com, toastmasters.org, Google, Apple, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts. Ryan? Jolene, before we wind up this conversation, can you share with us and with our listeners where to go to find your work in the world? Oh, Oh, that's so nice. I wasn't at you. You can find you can come find me on my website. It's www.jolinestockman.com. But the thing I guess I'd like to leave you with is is if you want to know more about autism, you talk to autistics always. There's an autistic in your life. They have a voice, whether they're verbal or not, uh, whether they're using words from their mouth or not. Uh, yeah, being open, finding out more. I mean, come find me, but <laughs> talk to all of us because we're all very awesome. Very interesting. We'll certainly put the links you mentioned into the show notes as well as links to your TEDx talk. Jolene, I have loved, loved, loved this conversation. Thanks so much for coming on the show and hope our paths cross again. Thank you for having me. That was so cool. Thank you so much for being on the program. Isn't it about time you published that book you've been thinking about? We can help with that. At ebookit.com, we've been providing authors and small presses with ebook publishing services since 2010. Visit us today at ebookit.com and let us know how we can help you.